Hi everyone, welcome to episode four of Transpsyche with uh, Laura and Vincent. This week we're going to talk about a bit of a complicated perspective of guidance or guardianship, depending on how you want to perceive it. Um, we did speak about parenting and parenting skills. Laura and I have kind of agreed that it's got more to do with the the guardianship that happens in all societies. So we, we both referred to you know, some of these traditional ideas of the village raising the child. So we want to talk about that kind of thing because we think that there's, my perspective has been from the last few weeks of seeing some letters from parents who are talking about their children, uh, gender crisis or identity crisis. Uh, there was a letter published on medium.com and shared on Twitter, and certainly in my network, by someone called Sam K. Durand, who is talking about losing her daughter potentially to detransitioning to a boy. And just the, the it, it drew my attention to the fact that there's an experience happening with the detransitioners, with the gender questioning people, and I, I see these as slightly different categories. Um, the people who are not sure of their sexuality, the people who are struggling with their identity. And then on top of that, you've got the experience of the parents who have to confront, you know, the, the idea that maybe they're failing as parents, maybe they did something wrong, maybe they, you know, there's all these things you can start asking yourself. Do we live in the wrong town? There's a perspective in anorexia um, treatment that some people say that one of the things you have to do if it gets quite bad is you should relocate the family. So there's all sorts of things that come into whether the parent is to blame or whether the parent is directly involved. But I think Laura and I are going to focus a little bit more on the society and all its conditions that are certainly at the moment seem to be creating a lot of identity issues for the youth, for adolescents, for, uh, you know, people from, it seems to be happening to people from the age of eight. Um, so I know a lot of us have paid attention to the commercialization and the medicalization of these things. Um, if you're involved in this kind of thing, you've heard about that already. But what I'm quite interested in is the, the ethics and the culture and the psychology that's created around these these people. Um, having been in this space myself when I was younger, and I, I understand how you can feel quite lost. So the other thing I want to talk about is the Genspect uh, guidance that was just released. Um, Laura, we can talk about that during the episode, but um, if anybody's interested, it's genspect.org and the guidance page which I think is just a fantastic document. And uh, if anyone from Genspec's listening, really thank you for this amazing work. The fact that there's um, references to research, the fact that there's different documents for um, guidance for families and friends, another document for guidance for parents, uh, guidance for parental support meetings, etc., etc. There's just it's an incredible resource, and I'm just honoured that um, they've shared this with us free. So, Laura, um, I think you know some of the stuff that you and I've spoken about uh, always revolves around identity. But I think what we're starting to sort of get into is how 
our identity is very much in context of our ecology or our society or our environment or the, a lovely term I heard the other day was the milieu, which is such a, a French term, but it's, it, I don't know, it, it gives a little bit more of a, an air of romanticism for me, which I quite like, you know. But the idea that, you know, ultimately, if you were born in a different time to different parents, you'd be a different person. I mean, I think everyone agrees to that, how you feel, you know, I mean, I think your perspective at the age of 24 is quite interesting with the things you've been through. 25, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so I just turned 25, which is a whole other topic, but I get a lot of parents wanting to talk to me because I am kind of in that unique position of the bridging from adolescence and childhood and undeveloped brain into adult adulthood, you know, even though technically I've been in young adulthood for what, seven years <laughs> or six years or whatever, you know, you know, young adulthood these days might as well just be adolescence anyway, because of the steps being taken by young adults are not, not the same as they used to be, right? So how people have many older people have graciously told me, well, when I was your age, I was buying my first house and getting married. And I am just starting to now you know, be able to afford or be mentally stable or, you know, to finish my college degree, bachelor's degree and move out. So I'm in that sweet spot. So that's why I think a lot of parents, they look to me for guidance, which is interesting because I'm like, well, I am looking for my own mentors and I have my own mentors as well. So I think it's important. There is some wisdom to be gained from looking at individuals some of the a lot of the detransitioners that speak out most actively are are not you know they're they're younger they're in their 20s or um early 30s so there is some wisdom to be gained by looking at individuals with different perspectives but i think we can agree that there's been this idea a shifting idea of youth focused um culture at least in the west and i've seen it well, I shouldn't say I've seen it because I haven't actually been around for generate for that many generations or decades, I should say. But I, I, I have seen research of it starting, you know, a couple decades past. So this idea and it relates to it relates to um, later stage capitalism and it relates to the consumerism because we are focused on the youth. The, the biggest demographic that everyone wants to know, right, is 18 to 25 uh, who are we pleasing them? And then some adults, you know, the, then you get the older people that are saying like, who gives a fuck about pleasing them? Like, what do they know? They don't have that much wealth. They don't have that many resources. Why are we marketing everything in our culture towards them? Which is exactly what this gender uh, promise or like gender hope or gender transition narrative paradigm is marketing towards these young people. Because you're seeing most of the young people, uh, most of the people who are transitioning today are within the 18 to 25 um, and even younger than that because their parents are being sold this narrative. So when I think of parents, you know, we're, well, we're talking about parenting, but we're talking about really what is the job of a parent to be a steward, to be a guide, a guardian. And this is the same role that other 
people in positions of authority are playing as well. So a therapist, a mentor, a teacher, a professor, um, a doctor, a, a media personality, somebody who ha is, you know, usually older and is in a position of experience and authority that is providing guidance and wisdom and helping a younger person develop on their own and navigate all that with firm boundaries. But what we're seeing is a lack of boundaries. And this is across the board. It actually crosses boundaries. Uh, the lack of boundaries crosses, <laughs> crosses many boundaries because there's a lack of boundaries between teachers, the guardianship role that a teacher has and their students. So we see a lot of criticism of education and higher education as well as K through 12. So higher educators are crossing boundaries um, by playing the role of this mentor, which is usually seen as a good thing, but the parents are then being sidelined and they're not able to, um, they're not able to properly mentor their own children who they have to deal with like 24 seven, right? Besides when they are being, you know, chauffeured to the teachers or schools or um, doctor's office or whatever support groups or things like that, or uh, with their friends or online. So there's this thing where the youth are kind of raising each other. So this is an attachment theory. I've seen research shown that these attachment problems are happening a lot nowadays where the children are, instead of being securely attached to their parents, they become attached, peer attached. So they are getting all of their information, all of their guidance, all of their learning and growth from other people their own age who know just as little as they do, right? So they're getting all their advice from people who are uninformed and undeveloped. And so then they're all doing that to each other and they're all attached. And it's even worse because they're all attached online. So it's not that they're just sitting around, you know, doing drugs together, for example, and disregarding like any other um, attachment that they may have but they're doing it online. So they're alone and they're isolated physically and then they're attached through a screen. So there's like a mediator. And so we now have the element of peer attachment and unstable or not, it doesn't even have to be an insecure attachment, but it could just be a faulty attachment. Like how much attachment are you going to have to a teacher or a professor who you only see you know, in a virtual classroom, for example, or a therapist online or, you know, a doctor. Like for me personally, how much attachment or did I have and how much attachment did they have to me, the psychiatrist that I only saw every six months or even longer, who wrote me the top surgery recommendation letter? How, how much of a relationship do we really have? If it's not an unhealthy attachment, it's it's a um, diluted attachment. It's a weak bond. And so they have the strongest, the children have the strongest bonds to their peers versus those at healthy attachment figures. So they are crying out for help, basically. Um, they're look, they're, maybe they're not actively saying that. I don't know if I was actively saying like, oh, I wish I had an adult in my life to guide me. But I definitely had a feeling of I wanted someone to rescue me and save me from myself. 
uh, with the transition and my existential crisis and just provide me some guidance. Well, the transition is often a cry for help, right? It's pretty obvious. We all know this now. Um, so they want an adult to give them boundaries. They want, it doesn't have to be an adult. They're just looking for any answers at all because they don't have meaning in their lives. So they are looking for answers through the internet to guide them through a YouTube personality. Or then, you know, when you're presented with people that are supposed to be in a position of authority who then seem to have the right language. And when I mean the right language, I mean language marketed and commercialized towards um, healing, like uh, healing language, this kind of diluted healing language and dil diluted therapeutic language. Um, immature, ha ha kind of half-formed guidance type language, like this is a process that you're going through. It's normal to experience these feelings. It likely means this. It's a sign of that when you're having gender dysphoria. So they, they use this um, faux therapeutic language to then market whatever they're trying to sell you, which is, you know, well, then you must be trans or you must be non-binary or you must be asexual or you're not straight or your parents are bigots or your, you know, um, critical gender critical friend is a bigot. Or something like that. Yeah, let me pick up on um, a couple of interesting things you said. Because, um, first of all, that delayed adolescence, just, you know, the people that are listening, um, this is a known thing in um, psychology and, and, and research. It's not, um, if, if anyone thinks it's just a matter of perspective that uh, you have this concept of failure to launch, um, which is basically people struggling or sometimes choosing, actually, because there's another um, construct happening in the insult culture of the, the neat uh, N-E-E-T people who, um, I can't remember exactly what it stands for now, but it, they choose to stay home. So it's a, it's a deliberate choice. And in their communities, their online communities, inevitably, they actually encourage each other to, to just um, stay home, be unemployed, um, and and live off their parents basically so um that's probably the more extreme version but the fact that we created a culture of of safetyism um and i suppose that's kind of a negative term but, but we created a safe culture which was inevitable when you look at what happened in world war one and world war two obviously so each generation after that was very focused well i would be hesitant to label it as safe. I guess I would more say, I don't want to use the term like infantilization exactly, but it's, it is a kind of permissive, right? It's a just, and by permissive, I mean a lack of boundaries. I really think most of this has to do, comes down to having a lack of boundaries, which is one point that I was somehow getting to, but I got off track a little bit, but I was saying the boundary issue is that we're failing to have proper boundaries that allow for secure individual growth. So either the parents are guardian, it's not just the parents. And again, there's so many different individuals who could affect a child's development, but whether some guardian, at least one, if not many, it's kind of an inst institutionalized concept now they're just more permissive. So they're in an effort to be more inclusive, to be more empathetic, to be more understanding. 
Um, and I'm sure you were going to say a point about that, about the, the transition from World War II until today, right? Um, about why that is, but it's more permissive. And so the parents are, they want to provide safety and they think they're providing safety and they think that they're providing, you know, and, and the, the children think that the children and the young adults who are failing to launch such as myself up until like right now, within the last like year are, you know, they feel safe because they're in a cocoon and they're in their, you know, well, a safe space, right? Kind of the joke of what, you know, a safe space is mocked. Um, it's not just providing like a safe space in a way would be maybe I could argue if your guardian said, you know what, I have the money to afford this. I'm going to send you to the school of your choice in another country or another city and I can pay for your room and board, but it's up to you. You're going to be independent. You have to cook for yourself. You have to do all this. And maybe I'll provide a safe, like, I'll have some of your basic needs met so that you can then learn and grow on your own, make your own mistakes. But I'll be there if you need more guidance or maybe something like that. You could argue that would be a, an example of maybe a positive safe space, although maybe that could backfire as well. But you know, financial, too much financial dependence. Although to me, that sounds really good. <laughs> Having, if my parents had done that in retrospect, they couldn't afford to, but versus the safe space of what we're really seeing, which is young people on their own in their parents' basements or in their, you know, in their bedrooms on the internet, doing all their learning, all of their needs are still being met by their parents, except that now they have adult needs like they have a sexuality need, they have a um, need for, you know, new relationships, they have an adventuring, they have a hungering for, for adult life, right? For, for human um, accomplishment and adventure and, and finding their own purpose. But how can they have their own purpose when their parents are still making dinner for them every night and doing their laundry for them? And maybe it's not that specific chore or thing that, that they're providing them. But that's the spirit of it. Um, and in my case, <laughs> they were doing my laundry and cooking dinner for me for quite some time. And now I've realized like, oh, that was actually holding me back because now I'm like, no, I insist. Like, let me, I will cook for myself. I, I want to do it all myself. I, I'm only living here temporarily until I can get my own place again. Um, you know, but once they don't know what freedom is like, Vincent, we were talking about this earlier. And I'll have you jump in because I kind of interrupted you, but about the cage thing, a cage animal doesn't, maybe it is dulled. Its senses are dulled to the point where it doesn't realize it's in a cage because it's in a safe bubble. You know, they give it food, but how boring is that? Like I have rats and I try to give them like an enrichment because rats are very smart. And so, you know, how fun is it? for them to just be given food in a bowl. You know, maybe you could argue, oh, they're satisfied, they're happy, they're getting their food, they're getting their needs met, they don't have anything to worry about. But what happens is they chew up everything. They are bored. So now I give them food in like a, a kind of a special treat type way where they have to think more to be able to access it, right? Because they have a foraging instinct. So if you really look at, you can see it with animals. So they're in a cage. And now apply that to such a complex creature as like a young adult who is developing, you know, their needs are not actually being met, but their parents, they want to do what's best for them. And maybe they grew up in a, a harsher time and culture 
uh, where, you know, they should have been given a little more loving uh, tenderness, let's say, or they should have been given a few more chances or, you know, things like that, but they were not afforded them. So now they're trying to overcompensate. So it's a combination of a lack of boundaries in general from, from parents to children, then from children to the internet. Of course, like there's no boundaries online. The education system is having poor boundaries within itself because it's now trying to act as not only an education system, but also like a parenting system and an advocacy system. Now it's getting really political with all the critical theory that's being trickled in. So Vincent, sorry, if you, if you want to go back to what you were saying, but I forgot that I was talking about the boundaries. The boundaries thing was my main point I wanted to bring up. Well, you, you, you covered some of the things I was about to say anyway, because that infantilizing thing, you know, that um, I was just pointing out where we're coming from, that we've come from a world that was at war, that um, lost a lot of its, um, the children and the parents, I suppose. But the fact that the, a generation saw how terrifying the world can be, okay? So that's, that's a very real part of our history. The fact that we're now... Uh, 80 years later, um, after the war, and we have reached the point where we've infantilized children because there were no checks and balances put in place. Well, in some cultures there were. So, you know, we're, when we talk about a lot of these things, we're talking about the, the the Western situation specifically. And even within the West, a lot of subcultures have not done this. But the fact is, your um the guardians so parents are part of that picture but certainly the 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 village the community the school the um the parents yes but also the parents family you know if they're involved we all have a responsibility to to raise children you know and, and the if any counselors or psychologists are listening you know the, the kind of thing that i'm talking about is the the Sociocultural Theory of Cognitive Development by Lev Vygotsky, who recognized, was the first person to kind of formalize um, in the 30s, I think, in the 20s or 30s, how how communities raise children. So he had some ideas about um, putting, putting kids through specific training and, and raising them certain ways, which I think is a little bit uh, difficult because... We all are unique, so we're all going to be different, and there's going to be differences at, at the outcome anyway. But in the modern context and the, the identity crisis stuff that we come back to, what I wanted to point out also was the, the infantilization has also been sort of rewarded because I think it was back in the, the 80s or the 70s maybe that um, advertising, the advertising industry recognized that children were an untapped market. So they created new campaigns which targeted the children. And the children just blew up the advertising industry and, and, well, and the consumerist industry. So the safeguarding that probably should have been done back then seems like wasn't really done. So the idea that you can commercialize youth was was established and we all accept that you know we switch on the tv and there's kids channels and there's kids tv and there's kids um products you know they are the biggest markets i mean i remember when i was in advertising 
um, we got given a brief which um, the the client literally admitted that they know that this product isn't specifically healthy for children, um, but we needed to create the impression to the parents that it was good enough and then create what they call the nag factor to the children. All right. So this is stuff that's been going on in advertising for 40 years already. So when we suddenly realize, um, as many of us are talking about, how the medical the medicalization of gender questioning youth is is a betrayal of the you know the the duty of all adults to protect children so that they can be raised safely and 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 healthily in in our society you know so so sorry i was i was kind of saying the same thing that that you're saying but i'm i'm just trying to tie some threads together for people who might not know about you know the, the history of of this kind of thing and how it's how it's developed to the point that to quote you you know the youth are raising each other because we've let them down um laura when we were talking earlier i used that analogy of um a vine or a or a creeper growing growing up and you know we, we all know that if you want a vine to grow successfully you need to give it uh, some kind of trellis to grow up all right and that's what that's what that's what we have to do for adolescents because once that 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 learning mode is switched on at around six or seven, if they don't have something to grab onto, they'll flail about and they'll grab onto all the wrong things. You know, so as they get older, um, unfortunately, some of us developed earlier, as we were talking about before. We developed earlier, so we became conscious of the lack of of something tangible to grab onto when we were 11, 12, 13 already. And uh, I just want to point out, like, I think that's not always the parents' fault. I think that's that's often the circumstances, the culture, the milieu that exists around us, the commercialized environment that, that, we, that we live in. What do, you, what do you think of that, Brian? Uh, well, I was just going to say that when you're saying that, you know, we developed earlier and then, you know, we didn't have something to grasp onto – the thing is, we did have things given to us that we were supposed to grasp onto. Certain ideas like religion and certain cultural norms. And it's just, we rejected those things because we realized that they were, like, our the, um, the, the trellises that we were supposed to grasp onto and grow around and through were actually faulty within themselves. The systems were corrupted they were um there was a lot of hypocrisy um i looked around in middle school and just thought like this is all bullshit like everything that's being marketed to me the music the media i don't trust it i i don't believe in this it's too shallow so i think kids you know on one level they they're consumers and they they they're subconsciously just like all of us with the social media and the instant gratification and the digital stuff they're being subconsciously programmed to like these things and scroll through it and buy these products. And obviously, um, not all parts of capitalism are corrupt. You know, there are legitimately useful products and things to be shown and buy, you know, but like they're subconsciously being led into it. But then they're also doubting it, you know, because I think 
their senses are dulled to the point where they are questioning it, but they don't have the energy or they don't have the out other guidance, higher values. You know, they haven't developed themselves yet to be able to fully question it. So you have, I think you have a lot of the, you know, you either have the young people that are, they're not questioning it at all. They haven't developed the capacity for it yet. So they're kind of mindlessly feeding into all of it and getting thrown, uh, consuming and internalizing all of these very adult messages, the poor boundaries, the lack of values, the postmodernist deconstructional things. But then you have the kids that have all that happening, but then are also starting to question it. They're skeptical of it. And those are the kids that um, get really, really into the gender stuff and the idea of the political stuff, um, just like I did and many of the other um, young people that are speaking about these issues now say they did too, you know, because you look for something of value. So you look, like I made a tweet earlier today that I said, it was made kind of nihilistically. It was made, I was in a depressed state when I made it, but I was saying cynically, like, I didn't mean to get myself into this battle. I didn't mean to get myself into this war, this culture or political or personal existential battle or crisis, but I was having it already within myself. So I subconsciously sought out battles to win and learn and grow and f discover things, you know? Like I just set out into the jungle. I was ill prepared to do it, but I set out into the jungle and then I found like a lot of um, predators and snakes and lions and things to have to fight, you know? Um, so I think we have a natural impulse to do that. All of us, all humans do, especially young people that are kind of disillusioned and then they're seeking higher meaning. So they go right to the source, what they think is the source of like the biggest issues of all time, racism, sexism, homophobia, gender, bodies, um, sex, uh, religion, you know, po politics. So they, they think they're jumping right into the deep end because they're like, just give it to me. I'm ready. I, I'm tired of playing in the kiddie pool. Uh, they, so they jump right into the deep end and then then it's way too much for them because you know they were not they were not taught how to swim properly yeah i i wow i was i was nodding um as you saw um i kept saying because because they're not prepared um so i might have mentioned in the other podcast you know i was left to live alone effectively abandoned when i was 15 and um in retrospect what, what I'm grateful for is that that was actually the truth. You know, the truth is you've got to figure things out on your own and you better get started as soon as you can. Of course, ideally, you should do that with some support and some safeguarding and a little bit of guidance, you know. Um, but that, that just, I'm glad you came back to it on your own. But the idea that you want to go, you want to go out into the wild, you know, in, in some of my research um, my my um, thesis in my studies was the behavior of uh, tribal cultures and traditions in Africa. And as we all know, you know, they've got these rituals that they force them at certain ages to do certain things because they've learned over thousands of years of, of adapting and, and um, you know, social learning. They've learned that we have to impose these things on the youth so that they take the next step forward. 
But it's interesting because what we're learning in psychology is that if you don't give them those challenges, they'll go and find their own challenges. They'll create their own challenges, you know. So um, the other thing I, I wanted to pick up on was just while you were talking, it was just so fascinating that I just read um, Jane Specht's the guidance specifically for friends and family. And there's a lovely chapter on authenticity. And you spoke earlier about how as you were, as, and I feel the same way. So I'm going to say we, even though we're, we're, you know, 24 years apart, but I think this, this problem started probably 30 years ago anyway. Um, that it, for me, it was, I started realizing that the hypocrites around me, were basing their behavior on Catholicism. And at 11, I realized that I can't play along with this anymore. So in my mind, I became atheist at 11. But the thing that stuck with me was the fact that adults are not authentic. They, they lie. They lie. They lie. They lie. You know? So, of course, I'm being silly. I mean, not all adults lie, you know? And, and um, as I, as I keep trying to remember to, to mention, I had a lot of really, really good guardians in my life, which, which probably saved my life. Um, I spoke uh, on Twitter today about the, the lesbian who um, was the barkeep at two pubs that I frequented when I was 15 years old. They, they thought I was 1920, but this lesbian, her name was Rihanna. Um, she actually looked after me in that context, so in that really messed up world. Um, the one bar was for mostly older people, um, and they had, uh, it was a very bizarre environment. They had strip shows. Um, so every now and then there were fights. It wasn't a very violent place, but, but certainly it wasn't for a 15-year-old. And then when... Rihanna realized that I was going out on nights when she wasn't on duty. She invited me to the other pub that she ran, which was a, a lesbians only, female only, and members only bar in one of the worst parts of Johannesburg in South Africa here. And I was welcome there. Well, I don't think all the ladies were appreciative of my presence, but Rihanna certainly made it clear that I was welcome there. And you know what? I learned a lot. At 15, I just learned a lot about authentic relationships and real courage and real bravery from Rihanna in that very bizarre environment. So what I'm saying, what I'm trying to point out to everyone is, even in the worst situations, there can be guardians who stand up for basic values, very basic values. And, and I would say to any adult listening, make sure, as Jen Spector advises in their documents, be authentic. It's the most essential thing. A child can smell lies a mile away. So I would, I would just reiterate that. And just with this business of, of lying to children, I was quite surprised the other day to read about Plato's um, noble lie that he advocated for in his, um, his writing, The Republic. He said basically it was a noble thing to lie to the masses about how the leadership structure was was uh, established. I, I think that I don't think Plato was responsible for that, but I think that's kind of what we do. And I think there's this instinct for adults and politicians to lie to the masses, to to placate them, and to almost be condescending toward them because 
there's this idea that they're better and they're and they're they've achieved more and they know better, you know. Um, so I think this this authentic, authenticity must come with a little bit of humility of understanding that yes, you are an adult and you are responsible, but ultimately the children and the adolescents will have to find their own path to value and to meaning. And you must just support them in that journey. It's not to say that you have all the answers or that you must impose lessons that you learned when you were a child on these children. You know, you think of that, Laura. Well, right. I, I agree with it. Um, because, you know, you can't, it's frustrating. I think the most frustrating thing from anyone, but especially, I've, obviously, I'm not a parent. Um, I'm a, I do have four rats that I call my sons, but, you know, they, man, they run all over me. But, uh, literally. But, you know, I think what parent, the biggest job and the most difficult thing to do is try to impart wisdom from pa your own past experience to someone who does not understand the beginning, middle, or end of that of the process of gaining that wisdom, right? So you can't just tell them what to do because they don't have any uh, backstory. They don't have any evidence for why they should believe that. So either they just blindly believe it, but then when they start questioning it, then they're not going to believe anything you have to say. Because like, what do you know? Because they haven't yet had an experience to realize that that's true or not. Um, so you have to be authentic in expressing your own life and your own values to model what that looks like for them because you can't just force them into a role or force them to do anything that would be for their own good but you can model examples of how to overcome your own obstacles and have your own difficult conversations and deal with your own emotional responses and your own stress and model that for them because they are observing you and even if you think they're ignoring you, they're really picking up on every single little message, whether they even know it or not. So anything you do will be modeled to them. So your words are not going to be as important as your actions, of course. And so, like, I guess to bring it back to parents who who like to talk to detransitioners, and I've thought about that because sometimes I'm just like, because I'm a very honest person. So I'll just think to myself, like, why do they want to talk to me? Like, I'm going through my own crisis. I'm still recovering from the CPTSD and all of the events of my life. And I'm only 25. I've just turned 25. So why would anyone want to talk to me? Why would they come to me for advice? Like, what do I know? But then Vincent told me the reason they want to talk to you is because you are honest and you are authentic. And I'm in the perfect little bridge between someone who didn't know anything. So a childlike mindset who was ignorant and immature and doubtful of any taking any advice. And I still remember what it's like to be in that mode, but I'm also getting into the mode where I'm now realizing some of my parents' advice was accurate um, or, you know, I'm learning my own um, realizations and wisdoms from you know, having made mistakes. So I'm in that perfect spot and I am so honest about it. I'll say like, yes, th that's exactly how I was thinking. And so I understand very much what a lot of these kids are um, and teenagers are going through because I was there really not that long ago at all. And I'm still unpro uh, unpacking all that. 
but I also have stepped some toes over the line of the other um, experience of adulthood. And I can now say, ah, yeah, so this is what I would tell myself. And so I'm young enough, you know, where I can maybe, you know, hopefully if I could talk to a child or as somebody, maybe they'd be willing to take my advice or, you know, the parents want to talk, even if they weren't, even if the teenager wasn't willing to talk to me, if the parent heard the advice, it would be like speaking to their child. So in a way, I do think parents talk to me because it feels like I'm a surrogate child to them who has now had some uh, experiences that now I'm able to talk to them like an adult. So they talk to me as if I'm their like hopefully future child. And that's what parents have told me that I'm a representation of hope. And in my jadedness, I'm just like, really? Like, I'm a representation of hope? Like, I feel so (laughs) hopeless myself, man. Like, geez, talk to me when I'm not being pro-social. But when I am, you know, in a rational mindset, they view me as what their child could become. They want their child to be like me. They want their child to have the values of authenticity and honesty and humility that I have learned the hard way. And they don't want their children to have to learn it in such a hard, difficult way, you know? So that's why they asked me for advice. And, um, you know, I try to just give the advice of, you know, greater minds than mine, you know, mentor, my own mentors and psychological research and my own experiences. But I guess maybe even there are probably parents listening right now who are, they just so desperate for advice. And I tell them like, you know, there, some of this is novel, like the digital stuff, the internet, some of the trans stuff, but trust your intuition because this is stuff we've seen already many, many, many thousands of years before, you know, it's just normal human stuff, but it's packaged in a unique way. Vincent, do you have a thought about that? Yeah, that's such a good point, Laura. Um, I didn't want to interrupt you there because I was just loving the, the monologue. (laughs) Um, the sure you know I, I had this picture while you were talking um and i'm sure this is the kind of thing that ron Brenner and vargotsky in psychology imagined as well um but i think what the, what the new age with internet and and social media platforms and all these other things has allowed is actually for this this idea that the community can raise a child okay so the, the old African proverb of um, it takes a village to raise a child, I think it's quite common anyway. I think I'm sure it appears in many other cultures. It certainly appears in the Bible. Um, but I wonder, you know, the, the, the parents who are doing a good job and want to raise their children their own way, they sort of reject that a little bit. You know, they want their children to be what they think is the best version of um of themselves, I suppose, you know, um, and and I'm sh- I'm sure a lot of parents do that very authentically. I don't I don't think there's a there's a malicious intent there at all, or a narcissistic intent at all, you know, with most parents. But but there's this element of if we are so interconnected and we're so um, interwoven in this new age, maybe. The power now is there that we can actually embrace the. Um, uh, the I, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the uh, the Academy of the Ideas 
uh, phrase, and I know there's a channel on YouTube, which is brilliant. Actually, people should watch that. But if the Academy of Ideas is now on the internet, um, available for us to access. So, of course, you want to access real people in real life. But in, in the past, that was always limited to your immediate environment, your immediate culture, um, the school, whatever it is, you know. But what we're able to do now is we're, I, I, I think we're effectively able to speak to our future selves and to our past selves. So when I thought about what you were saying about talking to parents of detransitioners or, or, or gender um, questioning um, teens is that they're able to speak to a version of their child who has survived a stage of this of this crisis, you know, and that's just a beautiful thing. And then, of course, in turn, you and I are able to talk to each other. Um, in turn, I'm able to talk to, to some um, more knowledgeable and sometimes uh, older people um, on the Internet or by email or through these other networks that I'm involved with. And that's just an absolutely powerful and wonderful thing, actually. The idea that if you went back 100 years and said, you know, we're going to have a way that you can talk to a version of yourself, you could talk to another human being almost anywhere in the world that's a version of yourself that you can look up to, that you can model yourself on. Um, it's just a beautiful thing, actually, um, because I think about all these children that grew up, uh, well, I was in that, in that stage, you know, that I just looked around me and everybody was Catholic, everybody was white. Um, there were a lot of matriarchs in my family. So I thought, um, at one stage, I thought women were just tyrants. <laughs> I know that's going to sound very crazy to most women, but that was the world I grew up in. The, the women were in charge in my world. So keep in mind, I grew up in a more traditional Italian culture in South Africa. So what tends to happen is the, the communities that, that end up in, um, uh, pioneered nations, this is uh, commonly known in, in sociology, they actually freeze the traditions that, of the country that they came from. So when I say I grew up in a traditional Italian environment, yes, I was in South Africa, but everyone around me was Catholic, Italian, and very traditional, married. Um, my parents were in an arranged marriage. My father was very patriarchal, um, my mother had no say in anything. When when she wanted to get a driver's license, they laughed at her. Um, so, you know, that might sound really weird, but yes, this is what happens in these these uh, closed communities that exist in in the country that's not their origin. All right? So in Italy, um, emancipation was actually quite powerful. And, and, and at the moment, you've got the most educated women are in Italy, actually. Um, but that didn't reach these little pockets of community that are outside of, of, um, of Italy or outside of Europe itself. So what I'm getting at is in this new world, um, by joining communities online, we actually get to find the better parts of, of our culture, of our society, and we can bring those parts together and support each other. And hopefully that leads to a, a more... Um, advanced way of upbringing where the safetyism has kind of failed, you know? Um, so let's say, for example, a 15 year old can either access the, the, the trans sites on Pinterest 
um, or they can access other groups that are more supportive and more pro-social. Well, you know, that brings to mind, I was talking to my sister and my sister is three years younger than me. So she's 22 now. And she was saying that she's angry at me for showing her Tumblr. <laughs> she's angry at me for introducing her to Tumblr when she was a teenager, when we were both teenagers, because that's where she found um, cutting, cutting um, materials and how to cut and self-harm and stuff. And I said, okay, but I didn't show you that. You can't be, you can't blame me for showing you that. I was on Tumblr because I didn't have any real life friends and I just wanted to find other teenagers who were into like old classic rock bands that nobody gave a fuck about. Okay, I was in the Sticks fandom. All right. So don't blame me for the cutting, you know. Um, so, but then so we, when you're saying like you have access to, you know, so the village is now online. But if you think about that phrase, it actually becomes kind of scary to think like it takes because who's raising your child, at least like in the village, everyone knew like, well, that's the drunk. Don't let your kids go by, you know. Tom, the drunken man who walks around the streets every night or, you know, stay away from that guy. He's like a rapist, you know, like it was a close knit community unless they kicked you out completely. But everyone knew who each other was. Right. But online, the village is more than a village. It's like anyone in the world is now in your village. So there's so many people you can't possibly protect your child from that village or even yourself but the th the problem also is that it's hard to tell who those who your real friends are right especially for people that maybe are more insecure or they're more prone to being neurotic and self-defeating or as a lot in the you know who are identifying as trans are autistic or abused in some way or have some kind of insecurity uh, or social deficit it's harder for them to even tell who their true friends are. So anyone who comes along and says, hey, like, I'm just like you. And guess what? Like, we're part of this whole thing and we can share memes with each other. And, you know, I was lucky enough to find like legitimately like, you know, 15, 16 year old girls who just wanted to fangirl about, you know, heavy metal or reminisce about the 80s that we weren't even grown up in, you know, things like that. I, I found that. But at the same time, you know, there's other people who trickle in there who are groomers. And this is a topic that, you know, it's hard to get into because it's pretty complicated. But 